Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, More Than Meat and Raymond, poems by Illinois Poet Laureate Angela Jackson. More Than Meat and Raymond draws on imagery from the African-American South and the South Side of Chicago, storytelling, the Black Arts Movement, and House of Folklore, deftly intertwining narrative and free verse. Jackson expresses the complexities, beauty, and haunts of the multi-layered Black voice. Listeners receive a 20% discount on More Than Meat and Raiment or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Bianca Stone's What is Otherwise Infinite, a collection of poems which Dorothea Lasky calls legendary, written in four sections with incisive and vivid lyrical language, Stone's poems consider how we find our place in the world through themes of philosophy, religion, environment, myth, and psychology. Says Eileen Miles, this is like moral Baroque and also an invitation to make things. I feel enclosed by something guiding here in these poems, which feels deeply experienced. And it may sound corny, but I think Bianca Stone is raising the possibility that writing poems or writing these poems is an opportunity to give. Does that constitute a philosophy or a craft? She's making that. What is Otherwise Infinite is out now from Tin House. Having a conversation with the inimitable Rabi Alamadine is a longtime dream of mine, and now finally a dream fulfilled that I can share with you today. As you'll soon see, one of the things we discuss in today's conversation is the unusual way he positions the writer and the narrator in service of finding the right distance to tell a story that is very important for him to tell. In the process of us exploring this, I mention one of his favorite poets, Fernando Pessoa, who, like no other, has explored narrative distance from self by creating over 70 different heteronyms with their own biographies, whether a bisexual naval engineer in Scotland or or a mystical shepherd, or a doctor and classicist living in exile in Brazil after supporting a failed royalist coup. All of these heteronyms wrote very different writings from each other. They translated each other, wrote the prefaces for each other's collections, and more. Pessoa is not the topic of today's conversation, but rather something that comes up in passing. But it is also what Rabi chose to contribute to the bonus audio archive, where he talks about the importance of Pessoa for him and reads from one of his poems, or you could say from one of Alberto Caeru's poems, depending on how you view it. The bonus audio is one of many potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show, including becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public, to rare collectibles from everyone from Nikki Finney to Ursula K. Le Guin. And every supporter helps with the ongoing collective brainstorm of who to invite 
to come on the show going forward, as well as receiving a resource-filled email with each episode containing things referenced in the conversation and the best things I discovered as I prepared for it. So head over to patreon.com slash between the covers and check it all out and consider starting the new year as part of the Between the Covers community. And now for today's episode with Rabbi Alamadin. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Rabi Alamadin, born in Jordan to Lebanese parents, raised in Kuwait and Lebanon, a short stint in England, and finally settling in California, his home until recently for many decades. Alamadin did not take a traditional American route to writing either. Studying engineering at UCLA, getting a master's of business in San Francisco, tending bar, becoming a well-respected painter, and one of the founding members of the gay soccer team, the San Francisco Spikes, the second oldest inclusive club in the country, a team that won the inaugural Gay Olympic Games in 1982, again in 86, and when a national gay soccer tournament was formed in 87, the San Francisco Spikes were regular winners there too. Frustrated with the type of writing he was seen depicting the AIDS epidemic, Rabi Alamadine wrote his first novel, Kool-Aids in Response, a book that grapples with both AIDS and the Lebanese Civil War, and which was a finalist for the 1999 Lambda Literary Award. He's also the author of the short story collection, The Perv, the novel I, the Divine, a novel in first chapters, the international bestseller, The Hakawati, which garnered him the Rome Prize in 2009, and his much-lauded An Unnecessary Woman, whose protagonist was a blue-haired, AK-47-toting, 70-something-year-old Lebanese translator and recluse who never published what she wrote. Winner of the 2016 Prix Femina in France, a prize decided each year by an exclusively female jury, who was also a finalist for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and a Pen Open Book Award, and it won the Arab American Book Award and the California Book Award. His next book, The Angel of History, also won the Arab American Book Award and the Lambda Literary Award, and his body of work has won the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature, a Guggenheim, and recently a Lannan Literary Fellowship. And if there were an award for the most 
salutary reason to be on Twitter, where he curates the most wonderful cascading streams of poetry and paintings, he would have won that too. As he says in one of his bios, Rabi Alamadin currently divides his time between his bedroom and his living room, and he also teaches creative writing at the University of Virginia. Alamadin is here today to talk about his latest novel, The Wrong End of the Telescope, with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, The Library Journal, and Shelf Awareness, rave reviews from everyone from The Guardian to The New York Times Book Review. Rebecca Mackay says, Rabi Alamadine is a master of both the intimate and the global, and the wrong end of the telescope finds him at the top of his craft, a story of rescue, identity, deracination, and connection. This novel is timely and urgent and a lot of fun. Eileen Miles adds, The wrong end of the telescope is the best kind of prose. Lines break out like poetry, and the story muscles on, telling. The setting is real history, which I'm hungry for, and Rabi Alamadine queers it handsomely with all kinds of love and a feeling that existence is pure experience, not language at all, and the shape of this book, right up to the end, is a becoming. Finally, Dina Nayeri for the New York Times says, Alamadine's irreverent prose evokes the old master storytellers from my own Middle Eastern home. Their observations, toothy and full of wit, returning always to human absurdity. Again and again, our narrator, Dr. Mina, cracks open the strange, funny, and cruel social mores of East and West. She shows us that acceptance and rejection exist across borders and often manifest in surprising ways. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rabi Alamadine. Thank you so much. You know, every time I get introduced, it's it's shocking. And it's like, is that me they're talking about? <laughs> well, indeed it is. But in, in talking about you and identity, the narrator and main protagonist of our story is Mina, a Lebanese-American doctor who is trans and a lesbian and who hasn't been back to Lebanon in decades because she was disowned by much of her family. And she's heading to Lesbos to lend her medical skills to help with the Syrian refugee crisis that has found the island its focal point. But she herself had no intention of doing anything other than practicing medicine. She didn't intend on being the storyteller of, of the book that we have. But she's tasked by a writer who has tried to tell the story and can't do it. A writer who, while a secondary character in your book, it, and is always sort of persistently in the margins of the book in a significant way as sort of a mystery and, a, and an absence. So I was hoping maybe we could start with you reading the short chapter, You Made Me Do It, as I feel like this chapter sets up not only the form of the book, but also raises so many questions about writing and how to write and also how meaningful or meaningless writing might be. You made me do it. You suggested I write this. You, the writer, couldn't. You tried writing the refugee story. Many times, many different ways. You failed. And failed again. Maybe failed better. Still, you couldn't. 
More than two years after you and I met in Lesbos, you were still trying. You tackled it from one direction, then another to no avail. You were too involved, unable to disentangle yourself from the, from the tale. You said you couldn't calibrate the correct distance. You weren't able to find the right words even after numerous sessions on your psychiatrist's couch. I should write this thing, you told me. You called it a thing, flicking your hand with a dismissive Levantine gesture. Every idiot thinks they're a writer, they're not. Every dollar thinks they have a tale to tell, they don't. But I should, I have a good one. You insisted I write the refugee story, as well as your story and mine, this thing. I told you I wasn't a writer. I could form sentences, present ideas and so forth, but not write a memoir or a book that anyone could necessarily want to read. Who said anything about publishing, you said. I should write my story, no one has to read it. There are enough books out there, you said. Why add more? I should write to make sense of the world, to grasp my story. Writing simplifies life, you said, forces coherence on discordant narratives, unless it doesn't. And most of the time it doesn't, because really, how can one make sense of the senseless? One puts a story in a linear order, posits cause and effect, and then thinks one has arrived. Writing one story narcotizes it. Literature today is an opiate. You contradict yourself all the time. You know that, right? I know, I know you are large like Whitman. You, you contain multitudes. If writing my story will not simplify my life, will not make more sense of my narrative, if I can't publish and become a gazillionaire, why should I do it? Memory is a wound, you said, and some things are released only by the act of writing. Unless I go in with my scalpel and suction to excavate, to clean, to bring into light, that wound festers, and the gangrene of decay will eat me alive. And whatever you do, you said, don't fucking call it a Lebanese lesbian in Lesbos, just don't. I'm writing now. I'll tell your tale and mine. I'll write your story for you. I plunge. We've been listening to Rabbi Alamadine read from the wrong end of the telescope. So, so you've talked before about how you need a certain distance to be able to, to write about something, that it can't be too distant, but it also you also can't be too enmeshed, something that you've called the Goldilocks distance. Um, in light of what you just read, can you talk about the Goldilocks distance? Sure. And, and whether this... Um, handing off of the story from the writer to the surgeon is, is part of that process for you with this book? It, it was definitely, I mean, I don't know if it was part of the process as much as it was the process for me. I had been working with refugees for a long time. Uh, and by working primarily, I mean, I was just interviewing re refugees. You know, whenever I went to Lebanon in the beginning, there were so many and they were all over the place. It was easy to just talk to them. And then I would I did officially a couple of times with uh, UNHCR, but then the crisis in Lesbos happened, and I went there, uh, and I had some shall we say issues. Uh, but the whole time, you know, I was trying to write something about the refugees. Uh, you know, a couple of of 
newspapers asked, uh, and I wasn't able to, I was not able to. I tried so many different times. Um, I think I successfully wrote maybe two stories, one, one, one essay, two essays basically. And one was a silly thing about just asking refugee kids who they're supporting for the World Cup. Um, I wasn't able to write it. It was, it was uh, difficult. Everything I wrote was shit. Just everything was just terrible, terrible, terrible. Because um, my, I mean, there were many issues I had by the time I went to Lesbos, but primarily it was that I began to see uh, my my family, you know, coming as refugees. You know, it's like it was looking at my people coming across, and I was on the other side in some ways. So. I wasn't able to extricate myself to see what the volunteers were doing, what the refugees were doing. It, it became too confusing. Um, and then uh, I was writing this other story uh, and Mina, the, the character was, was part of that story and it had nothing to do with the novel. Um, and all of a sudden Mina slowly migrated from that story into the novel. And once she came on board, as I like to call it, or she began to tell the story, even though, of course, it's me, you know, I'm not completely crazy. <laughs> I was able to distance myself. And primarily, it was, you know, her character, uh, she had the, the right, the ability to actually be separate. Uh, you know, I always envisioned her as, you know, she's a surgeon. So, you know, all these things that the writer would go through, she would go through, but she'd be able to put them aside and do her job. Whereas the writer, like most writers, was a little bit too self-involved and just thinks the world ends with his trauma. Uh, so it was that contrast and, and her ability to get into the situation, feel the same things, but able to write about it. And that to me was, just the right amount of distance for the book. Um, I mean, the distance is a, is a big thing. You know, I've always said that if, you know, if one has to write about one's family and one is, uh, you know, too close or the family is too close, it's really difficult to write about it. But then if you're, you know, completely the black sheep and just separated, you can't write about it either. You know, one is you're too in it to see it, the other you're too far away to see it. So it's this one foot in either, or you know, what is the right distance to be able to see something? And and yeah, I call it the Goldilocks distance. And it's different for every writer, you know, every yeah. writer has their different way of being. Well, it remind this choice reminded me of um Vivian Gornick's book, The Situation and the Story, which Absolutely. Which, which is one of and that first chapter that that you know, introductory is, is brilliant. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, she's writing about nonfiction where she, but she puts forth the notion that even memoirists need to create a persona from which mm -hmm. to write, from which to take their life material and compose it, that, that a memoirist still has to choose from which one of their selves that they're writing from and also which vantage point in time, even which may be a different vantage point from the actual time they're writing in. Mm -hmm. and, and that that I mean is is so true for me. But what I also notice is that each situation and each 
uh, story that you're telling is it requires a different kind of distance mm -hmm. and and that i think is is you know being able to know what your distance is 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 extremely important yeah well she talks about the type of persona in nonfiction as an unsurrogated persona versus the surrogated persona of fiction and what's interesting about this choice you made in, in that you introduced us to in the chapter that you read is we have the writer character who may or may not be an unsurrogated persona or a surrogated persona, but you invite us to, to confuse him with you as mm -hmm. an, as an unsurrogated uh, persona insofar as he shares um, many of the identifiable uh, broad stroke details of your life, whether it be, his work with Syrian refugees in Lebanon or his fabulous spectacles. Mm -hmm. um, so we can connect the, the secondary character to you. Um, but what's also interesting is that many of the people you've been in conversation with around this book, particularly the ones who know you well in real life, see so much of Mina, the surrogated persona. They see so much of you in Mina. And I, and I wondered if maybe you could speak to um, having these two personas, if, if perhaps the story is being told through the gaps in the interplay between, between these two characters, the, and also between a doer and a, and a observer. They, it's, this is, uh, shall we say, a loaded question, uh, because a lot of what the novel is, is about, you know, what can you observe, what can you be witness to, and what can be done as to, sort of the interaction between the observer and the doer. Um, and that's a, always a difficult thing. Uh, but yes, um, you know, I don't know whether I am limited in my imagination um, or uh, that this is what works best. But, but most of my characters are sort of me. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, the big hint is that I always write in the first person. You know, was, I've had some short stories in, in third person, but for the most part, I write in first person. I inhabit the character. At the same time, I think I've said this a couple of times, that when I start to write and when things are working, I become the character. Uh, but I also see the character next to me as I'm, I'm working. So it's both at the same time. And it, in this novel, it works that way, as in there is Mina who's, you know, I'm inhabiting, and then there is the writer who's sort of me. Uh, although, you know, I mean, it's supposed to not be completely me or whatever, but, you know, it's closer to me than them. Uh, so that this, this, dichotomy of the two of us observing gives a multiple angle or a multiple point of view to what is going on. Um, and, you know, again, I don't have to keep mentioning that uh, it's, you know, the wrong end of the telescope. It's like, I mean, it's not even, I was thinking that it's not even one telescope. There should be many, you know. Uh, but from that point of view, and then those two point of views. And then there are multiple sort of characters within the book who begin to tell you some things about what happened. So there's those point of views. Uh, and most novels do that. In this novel, it 
I try to 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 show that uh, to sh to show clearly that they're different point of views, um, and uh, the sort of the tension uh, or sometimes lack of between Mina, the main narrator, and the writer who may or may not be the narrator um, is, is, I was interested in that the whole time. It was also really fun, the ways that Mina lovingly makes fun of the writer. Well, <laughs> the trouble was that, shall we say, I was highly, highly judgmental of the writer. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, I'm not going to say the self-loathing came to the surface, but some form of loathing came to the surface. Uh, and it was interesting that I was just smacking into this character, the, the poor thing. Then the more I sort of, wanted to, to strangle the character, the more loving Mina became in the book towards the character. And I started thinking, oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is like, it's like my therapist would, was going to have a field day with this one, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and at times I started thinking, oh my God, I made Mina like a, not just an admirer of this writer's uh, works, but a, a fan, a big fan, you know, she's trying to, as much as she keeps, you know, making fun of him, she's trying to prop him up. And I thought, you know, my God, people will look at it and think, I wrote, a I wrote fan of me into my work. <laughs> it doesn't but come I'm across that way, though. Huh? I, I don't think it comes across like she's just... Well, that's the thing. It, yeah. it it didn't matter in the end. It worked. It worked. You yeah. know, it was like it, I felt that it worked. That uh, she, in the narrator, saved the writer character. You know, she's the one who basically props him up. You know, uh, takes over in in some ways. Yeah. So it's both a you know on the page and in my head. Mm. Well. Perhaps my favorite conversation you've had around the book, it was this really wonderful one with Kara Walker, mm -hmm. um, someone you first met when she was visiting Lebanon in 2010, and you showed her around. Um, and because Lebanon is home to one and a half million Syrian refugees and a half million Palestinian refugees, two million refugees in a country of a population of only six million, um, one of the things that you... And also because you you spent have spent a good amount of time working with Syrian refugees there, um, as you mentioned, a part of you showing her around was showing her some of these camps. And this is what she said about the visit. I remember almost nothing about the visit. It it exists in my mind as a montage of impressions, textures, and gestures until the moment Alamadine showed me a shanty town of migrant workers whose invisibility was a contrast to the more, quote-unquote, established Palestinian refugee camps. But you tell her that when you went to Lesbos, which you've sort of alluded to in your opening comments, when you went to Lesbos joining some of your friends who were there to help, you thought that because of your past experience with the Syrian refugees in, in Beirut, that you'd arrive and you'd hit the ground running, 
But when you arrived, you instead felt a complete loss of self like you've never experienced before. And, and you say to Kara, quote, I didn't understand who I was or what I was doing there. Am I Lebanese? Am I an American? Do I belong with the refugees or do I belong with the volunteers? And, and our writer, our writer, surrogated or unsurrogated writer in the book seems similarly unmoored. Um, not knowing how to meaningfully engage with the scenario. Um, but I, I, it raises the question that I'm curious about is, given your experience working with Syrian refugees in um, previous to going to Lesbos, can, can you speak a little bit to what the difference was for you, where in one situation um, you were unmoored around your sense of self and in another you weren't? Primarily, again, in the beginning, I was in Lebanon. Um, we were all, in many ways, one one people. You know, the difference between Syrian and Lebanese is is big, but it's still, you know, not this not the difference between Middle Eastern and and Westerner. Um, so I did not have the pull of sort of the Western pull saying, you know, you're different, you're different. Um, but the other, and just as important is a lot of my interviews were under the auspices of the UNHCR, uh, which is United Nations uh, UN, Human Refugee Council or something like that. Um, and it gave me an official position um it uh, it gave me a distance you know that i was able to be separate because no matter what we say and do and journalists have been trying forever and ever it is really almost impossible to break the barrier between interviewer and interviewee uh there is a wall there um I mean, it could be a glass wall, but it's still there. And I felt separate. Um, and, and again, a, a lot of it is, is talked about in the book and, and you know, what, what the writer goes through. Um, it's when I did most of my work with refugees for four years or five years, whatever it was, it was listening to their stories. Um, in many ways, stories are can be both engaging and can be a defense mechanism. I started, you know, seeing not the people, but the stories they were telling. Um, and, you know, again, that's one of the ways that humans interact. Uh, but I found it fascinating when I hit Lesbos and, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that I wasn't really interacting with refugees. I was interacting with their stories. Um, and that's one of the things that led me down into the spiral when I got to, uh, to Lesbos. So yes, all these were, were separating. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about that interview with Kara, you know, I, I love her and there's a reason I love her, is that she started talking about her time of helping with um, you know, shall we say the underprivileged in Brazil. And, and she had the same experiences of where does she belong and what wall can one hide behind? And 
my early work with the refugees, I was able to hide behind, I'm a writer, you know, I, it's, it's a persona I know really well. I observe, I write, I listen, I, I, I almost always want to say, I swear I'm a good listener, I swear I help people. But the truth is I'm doing it from a position of power. In Lesbos, I arrived with no backing, with nothing. And I was, I threw myself into the middle of a situation that was completely, I was just another person. I couldn't hide. Uh, and that, you know, shook me. Yeah. Um, if you had asked me before you answered to imagine what the re- what your answer was going to be, it was very different. Like I, I imagined and I'm curious about it, is I imagine that maybe part of the difficulty was the sheer number of volunteers that you would be among in Lesbos versus perhaps in the more established camps in Beirut, there wouldn't be the tidal wave of of volunteerism. And and in in Lebanon, the you know, whatever volunteerism was there was primarily local. Um but it, it, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, most of my interviews were not particularly in camps. They were, the Lebanese in the Syrians in Lebanon were not officially separated from the people of Lebanon. So they were everywhere. I met them everywhere. In Lesbos, uh, there was this, also this whole thing of, you know, the volunteers and, and who they were and why they were there. And then seeing that, I had the same, the problems that I had with the volunteers, I had, was repeating the same behavior that, you know, I was there to, because I wanted the world to see me as someone who is caring, you know, um, not about the refugees. And again, what happened sort of reinforced that idea that, you know, no, I was there to help myself. Now, again, I will repeat that because, you know, a lot of people get offended and, and no, I don't mean that you shouldn't volunteer. You should volunteer. I've been volunteering all my life for many different things, but one has to be conscious about what, why one is doing it. Uh, and being in Lesbos and seeing it so blatant because they were young and they were, you know, open and, and they were wonderful. Uh, and I started seeing you know, the other side of volunteering, which is, you know, they're on vacation, they're on vacation. Uh, and there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. I keep saying it's better to go on a vacation and help people than go on on a vacation to an island by yourself. You know, it's just a different way of, of behaving. Yeah. Uh, but yes, there was a, there was a big difference, you know, and then I, I stopped working with, with, you know, after this, I stopped working with refugees for a while. And then I was asked to go to to Istanbul to work with this Syrian organization that is helping Syrians. And that I thought was one of the healthier models that I've seen, which is older refugees helping more recent arriving refugees. Uh, And it's a school and it was magnificent. I mean, I thought it was wonderful. Well, the book opens in, I think, a really interesting way. It opens at a moment on Lesbos where the weather has turned bad. That's when Mina's arriving. So the moment that Mina arrives, there actually aren't a lot of refugees arriving simply because of the weather. But the island is awash with a lot of restless volunteers milling about. 
with no one to quote unquote save. Um, so it really highlights something that's going on on the island too. And some of the volunteers are like Mina, they're medical, but many of them, as you mentioned, are, they're on vacation, they're hybrid tourist volunteers in a sense. And you said to Kara that you, you kept saying to yourself that the volunteers were great people, but you also wanted to kill them. And, um, but that you also say something that you've just spoke to, but I want to read the quote from this too, because it was, it's, it's so interesting. And I also think it returns us back to identifying both as a refugee and as a volunteer at the same time yourself, that you kept telling yourself you were a good person, that you were there with good intentions. And therefore, because of that, whatever you did was surely going to be good. And then you, and then to Kara, you say, quote, then I realized I sounded like the United States of America. It was a stunning realization, like hitting a big wall. When people ask if it's a book about the refugees, I want to say, no, no, it's about me. And it just feels like there's so much to unpack in that one line. But it also makes me think of, of the review in the New York Times by Dina, um, where she says it's really rare in a novel to see the depiction of sort of the ugly side of certain volunteers. And I guess particularly the humil humiliations that they sometimes inflict as part of their performance of goodness. And you portray some of that in the book too. And I just wondered if you could speak to, um, you know, there you talked about the desire to hide behind a wall, but there's also some people who are reinforcing a wall or reinforcing a distance through their act of charity or disguised as an act of charity. Uh, yes. Again, the difference between uh, like what the reviewer said and what I would say is I don't, I didn't see it that much as the ugly side of volunteering. I wanted to kill them, but I didn't see, <laughs> I saw it as very natural in some ways yeah. uh, because I was doing the same thing as they were. Um, you know, it, it, it's part of being in many ways human. Uh, we unconsciously or consciously humiliate those who are less powerful than we are, you know, and the the big thing about you know in my opinion being a good human is to start to realize that and you do work against doing that but it i mean again these kids were i keep repeating they were you know some of the best that we that humans have to offer i mean they're taking time to go and help refugees but at the same time, the first time I saw, I mentioned sort of a similar scene in the book. The first time I was, like, it was the first night and I was in this cafe eating by myself. And then there was a switch. And all of a sudden, this cafe with all these young college aid kids became a dating bar. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, when you think about, when I think about it rationally, it's, of course, completely expected. They're, you know, 19, 20, 21 in a strange place. You know, they're excited because they're helping people and, they and you know, they want to get laid. Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 at the time, I was so, like, flabbergasted. Like, wait a second, where am I? You know, there's this big disaster happening. 
And these kids, you know, it was their night off. You know, they they wanted to get laid. And like I said, in when I think about it rationally, and and this makes absolutely perfect sense. When I'm in, when I was in the situation, it was like, you know, this we're having a disaster to end all disasters. You know, and then I I have to remind myself that actually during the disaster to end all disasters people get laid <laughs> yes this is what happens you know uh i also wonder if we think about the people who have the most unimpeachable reasons to be there let's say mina a surgeon like they desperately need her skills everything that she's doing on the island is is necessary and meaningful you still have got to think that somebody motivated to become a surgeon and then become a surgeon who goes to Lesbos, it it has, I don't know that it invalidates their service that they also, um, it might be important to their, their notion of their self Ooh. that, that becoming this it makes them feel good in some way. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the, the in many ways, the one of the major themes of the novel is that, no, it does not. And this is what I keep trying to say. And that's why I I will repeat that. I don't see them as ugly or the ugly side of volunteering. They're, they're human. They have many sides. Uh, when we started this conversation, I talk about, you know, there's Mina, who's me. There's, there's the narrator, who's me. There are the volunteers who are me. And stuff. We are all multiple versions of ourselves and which ones come to the fore it is is depending on this depends on the situation what i needed when i was writing this book i needed what you know the guy who sort of in real life saved me was this you know iranian musician who's swedish um and he kept telling me i don't care what you're going through i could put you to work I don't care why you're here. I could put you to work, uh, you know. And he brought up the sort of the okay. You you pull up your britches and you go to work. Uh, we all have that, and we all have parts of us that are you know dizzy, and parts of us that want to get laid, and you know all that. We're it's all there. So what shows up and how that shows up is is important. All I ask of myself most of the time is that I become conscious of what is happening. The reason that I had trouble personally in Lesbos as opposed to, you know, all the others was it hit me. When I was there, it hit me for the first time that I not I was not who I thought I was. Yeah. I was not, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether I was Lebanese or American or, you know, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? And all these things hit at the same time. And I thought that would make for an interesting novel, but I couldn't write it. I had to create another persona, <laughs> which is also me, right. to come in and tell the story of me. So, you know. Which all this, you talking about this, all of it makes sense why you love Pessoa so much. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm, he's he's like my idol. I, I know I have at least, you know, like maybe 15 personas. He has 72. <laughs> well, you'll get there. <laughs> well, these these questions of goodness, they remind me of some of the questions that Elisa Gabbert raised in her last book, The Unreality of Memory. And one of the things she explores is 
morality in relationship to information overload. And if I remember her book correctly, she talks about at the time of the first colonies in the United States, the the first newspaper came out once every month. So that was like the speed of the news. And, and one of the thinkers she cites in the book wondered if it were perhaps easier to construct an achievable way to be moral with a, within one's own valley if you didn't know all of the terrible things happening all the time three valleys mm-hmm. over or let alone across the ocean and that for most of human history most of the moral choices we would make would be based on an amount of information several orders of magnitude smaller and coming toward us more slowly um and i also was thinking about octavia butler's parable of the sower where once all of the stability of sort of institutional and governmental structures have disappeared and people form these cohorts for self-defense um, where quickly anyone who's outside of their their newly formed group, they would defend against and even kill simply because there were sort of limits to how many people could be considered quote-unquote mm-hmm. us and survive in this, this post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic free-for-all that she created. Um, These questions of memory and forgetting, there's something you tackled, I think, most head-on in your last novel, The Angel of History, where Jacob, who lived through the worst of the AIDS crisis, he forgets in order to continue living. And that book also engages with the drone wars in Yemen. And you said it's partly a self-recrimination around the way you were able to go on living in, in the face of those drone wars. But I wonder if you feel that the amount we need to consider is at an impossible scale. But also, even if you do feel that, it does feel like your book is still suggesting, at least for yourself, but I don't think just for yourself, that we must face it. We must still consider it. Um, But I'm interested in your thoughts about this perhaps human notion of when in overwhelm we try to shield what we're willing to consider ultimately. Um, yep. <laughs> but I wonder again, if it's only uh, an overwhelm, I mean, Oct- Octavia Butler's uh, idea of the sower is the world we live in all the time. You know, we form groups and we form identities uh, and I mean, you know, I'm all for, um, in some ways, if you want to call it identity politics or whatever, but we have to remember that by forming these identities that separate us from those who are outside, we begin to behave in a monolithic way that is detrimental to those on the outside. Um, now, again, I, I, there's this whole thing of, of course, we have to because the dominant culture is is also you know monolithic and it defines itself in a different way that excludes others so there's this whole tension but we just have to figure out a way of how do we deal with identity itself who is us and who is them and why is you know this one part of our group and that one not um, and unfortunately or fortunately the need to belong sometimes I think overpowers everything. And we 
we sacrifice a lot to belong to one group or one identity or um, and we can't we can't conceive of a bigger notion you know John Lennon was you know way ahead of his time <laughs> you know imagine we're, we're there's no nations or because the world can't imagine it we as humans cannot imagine a, a an entire humanity and all of us in one group we have to you know it's like we need an alien invasion to come in to 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 we need an other basically we need somebody to be an other to bring us together uh, and every group needs it the trouble is that we keep creating identities and somebody has to be outside that identity and that those people become the other and we project all kinds of evil and mischief onto them. Um, but how much can we consider from, from uh, the world? I think it was, I, I, I wrote this in my first book uh, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, uh, I imagine that the word sane means that uh, thinking that this infinitesimal segment of the world is reality and the rest of it doesn't exist. Uh, and that's how we have to function because, you know, the world is way too big. And yes, it's getting bigger with, with you know, all the technology that we have, we get to see more and stuff. And we have to protect ourselves because I cannot see how we can live in a world with so much sorrow and be able to go on. Uh, but at the same time, we can't not think about it, mm -hmm. yeah. or at least I guess most people can. I haven't been able to, um, and I, I don't know how to, you know, protect myself, and I don't know how to extend myself to be able to do anything other than than watch. But I cannot see how it's like we're getting crazier and crazier, and. Uh, or maybe we've always been, you know, I, I don't know. But I don't see how one can ignore so much injustice just so that you could, you know, watch good TV. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna take this question of scale into the realm of storytelling because I think you do take this question of scale into the realm of storytelling in this book, uh, which ultimately becomes a question of how to engage the reader. Um I'm going to read something from the Gornick as part of this question. And it's, she's describing going to a funeral in this part of the, of the situation in the story. A pioneering doctor died and a large number of people spoke at her memorial service. Repeatedly, it was said by colleagues, patients, activists, and healthcare reform that the doctor had been tough, humane, brilliant, stimulating, and dominant a stern teacher, a dynamite researcher, an astonishing listener. I sat among the silent mourners. Each speaker provoked in me a measure of thoughtfulness, sentiment, even regret. But only one among them, a doctor in her 40s who had been trained by the dead woman, moved me to that melancholy evocation of world and self that makes a single person's death feel large. The next morning, I awakened to find myself sitting bolt upright in bed, the eulogy standing in the air before me like a composition. That was it, I realized. It had been composed. 
That is what had made the difference. And this, this notion of making a single person's death feel large is, I think, one of the large, one of the great strengths of, of the wrong end of the telescope for me. Um, but it also feels like one of the coping mechanisms for Mina, the protagonist, as, as she's administering to people on Lesbos, she becomes particularly invested in the fate and the story of one family where the mother figure has late stage cancer and is soldiering forward, hiding it from her kids as she tries to get them to Europe before she dies. Um, and the book scope, like Mina's, comes down to the scale, to the fate of one family. And I guess I wondered if this, for you, was a storytelling technique so a reader could take in the scale where, where questions of dignity are on a level that one could parse and digest. I mean, definitely. The the one thing that struck in the last thing you said is that it's a storytelling technique. It's it, I don't know if it's a technique. It's how stories are told. No matter how big the story, it's always a story of individuals. You know, the story of of a a country is the story of its people, um, individual peoples. The you know, it is. I assume it can be done, and I can't think of anything right now, but. There are, of course, macro stories that tell, you know, the movements of people and that, and those are interesting, uh, but not really. Uh, it, it is individuals. Now, you know, we can go back to, yes, of course, the story of one person is a story of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, the story that's like, again, the personal is political. And so that, you know, this, the story that I tell becomes political because it is a political story, but it's really the story of one, one person. Now there are many other stories in the book of different people, but I've always, I'm interested in, I mean, I, I'm interested in people like, you know, I, uh, I might disapprove of, you know, the political regimes here or there, uh, or whatever, but I'm what more much more interested in how that polit how that politic or how that regime affects people. You know, uh, I it's like if I interview Syrian refugees, it's not to solve the you know the political problem. It's to hear the story of of people. You know, it's a it, I don't know, again, going back to, I don't know if of a storytelling technique that doesn't involve, you know, singular stories. Yeah, no, that's a good point. But there's another... I mean, sorry, you go back to A Thousand and One Nights, which is, you know, this big thing. But, you know, whenever you read it, you remember, it's just the story of, you know, this person. Then it's the story of this person. You can, you can tell a bigger story, but it's it's singular people. Yeah. But there is a sense, I think, I don't know if this is, a, I mean, the sense of of bringing things down in moments in the book to things where um, meaning is on a level that is easier to engage with. For instance, another one I'm thinking of is when the writer encounters a group of boys, refugees, who don't have the fare to get onto the ferry to go to the mainland Europe, and he isn't able to pay the tickets for everybody but he's able to pay the tickets for some. He can get some of the people on the boat. So in this sense, can can make a measurable, visible difference 
in perhaps other ways, he's unclear what he's doing. And, and that difference isn't much, unfortunately. Um, and that's one of the scenes that, you know, happened you know, with, with me and it, it broke me um, because there were, you know, like a hundred boys and all of them, you know, 15, maybe 16 at most. And you can't help them, you know, you can't. Uh, so what does one do? But you, you, you know, again, not doing something is, 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 is worse than doing something. Uh, but yes, it becomes a story of, you know, it's like that scene in the, in the novel is important to me. And, and it was important, you know, in real life because it, they were both a collective and individuals. So seeing them as individuals and, you know, I remember their stories and, you know, can I make a joke about it in, in the novel, but I talked to at least six or seven Muhammads in a group of 10. <laughs> it's like they're all called Muhammad. Uh, <laughs> yet at the same time, they were all individuals. You know, again, I, in my head, I remember the guy in the Lambswool uh, sort of jacket that kept explaining to me that he's a shepherd, but he can do anything, you know, uh, and he was... 13, 14 at most, by himself. Um, but again, it's both a collective thing. You can see them, but maybe you could help, you know, one or two or, you know, 10 or, or go into credit card debt for a while. Yeah. Well, that scene really reminded me of, of my conversation with Jenny Erpenbeck. She too is writing about refugees. Oh, I know. I, I, I loved her. Yeah. But she's she's puncturing the narrative of about what happens when refugees arrive in in Europe, as if arriving in Europe was a happy ending. Um, and I think that's probably what you're alluding to when you say it, it's not much, even getting them on the ferry. I mean, if we were to look at the numbers of refugees allowed into Germany, certainly compared to North America, but also compared to many countries in Europe, you might called Germany's immigration policy generous. But um, she tells the story of a refugee whose father was burned to death in Nigeria, and he ends up in Libya after that, where black Africans were literally being hunted openly in the streets. He's forced onto a boat with his family to escape, and his two children die when the boat is capsized. And then when he makes it to Europe, despite being quite skilled, he isn't allowed to work. And she writes in his obituary, if you aren't allowed to work, you can never really arrive. And most of the refugees aren't really allowed to arrive. Um, as I imagine these boys arriving on the boat with the help of the writer, I imagine that they're not going to be allowed to arrive. And I guess... The impossibility of the situation or, or the absurdity and the Camus sense of absurdity of the situation made me think of an interview where you're talking, I think, to John Freeman, where you paraphrase a line from Calvino. And I found Calvino's original words, too, and I, I liked your paraphrase and I liked the original, mm -hmm. so I'm going to read both. Um, your paraphrase, the entire world is inferno and to live well 
you find people who are not Inferno and you hold them close. In Calvino, the Inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here. The Inferno where we live every day, that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of the inferno are not inferno, then make them endure, give them space. To me, I imagine this is sort of like an Alamedine Ars Poetica, but um, I, w- I want to hear your thoughts about the doing better, being better than the not doing, which uh, thinking of Camus again, of the doctor in, in that town during the plague. Um, I mean, it's... it's. <laughs> I repeat that in the novel. I mean, the, the doctor who dresses up as a woman to go back and help, it, it's... A Cam- how do you call it? A Camusian thing. <laughs> uh, well, the 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 weird part of this that whole that whole quote I put in the middle of my third book, I the Divine. It's smack in the middle of it, just in case anybody doesn't get what I'm trying to do in the book. Uh, it, it's it's a it's an amazing thing. It and I it's funny because. I had to reread the book only two weeks ago because I'm teaching it in class, Invisible Cities. And what I completely forgot was that this quote is the last paragraph in the book. Mm. It, I mean, everything in the book, it's, it's tangents and it's weird architectural structure is to lead to that one paragraph. Uh, and I, you know, I was floored the first time I read it. I was floored the second time and the third time. But this time it was like, my Lord, this is probably what he's been writing about all his life. And I know that it's what I'm writing about. And I assume it's what a lot of writers write about is how do you make, uh, you know, what makes us human uh, endure? You know, um, how do you make um, what we treasure a treasure? Uh, and it's a, it's a I think a, a an issue that I think every writer does, or at least I hope I, every writer does, uh, and we all do it very differently. Um, and you know, I hope I do it with a sense of humor. Uh, but yes, it's that. It's how to you know, make what is loving in us endure uh, in spite of all the inferno that goes around, you know, it's like for most of us, it's been a hell of the last sort of four or five years. It's been really, really hell. Uh, I mean, I thought, you know, it couldn't get worse than the refugee crisis. No, no, it can get worse. So how do we keep going, you know, in a pandemic when, you know, when people are insane and let's call it what it is, when people are reverting to fascism, to outright fascism, how do you make what you love endure? Um, It's a difficult thing. Yeah. 
Uh, could we hear the chapter, How to Make Liberace Jealous? Oh, my. Oh, and that, by the way, is also true. The story you're going to uh, read? Yeah, yeah. That it's, it, I met this woman, and uh, she had a Liberace pantry. <laughs> she was amazing. She was amazing. Uh, she's, she, we only talked for like 15 minutes, but I loved her. <laughs> she was so happy that I loved her pantry. And, you know, and I went full camp mode and she was like, oh my God, you know, we're sisters. <laughs> uh, yeah. Lebanon became home to the largest number of Syrian refugees and to the largest refugee population per capita in the world. In a country of 4 million, there were more than a million refugees, though the actual number was closer to a million and a half. So much pain, so much destitution, so many refugees. And sometimes it seemed that you wanted to interview every one of them to provide an ear for all the tales. I remember listening to you on the radio saying that there was nothing you could do to ameliorate the situation, that you felt helpless and pointless, but that you thought doing nothing would have been a crime. You could bear witness, you said. Observing was the one thing you knew how to do. If you could listen to their stories, maybe their stories would, could make sense. Only what was narrated could be understood. You traversed the country, Granted, it's a pygmy country, talking to all manners of Syrians. You went to different corners of Beirut, down south to Sidon, up north to Tripoli, to the west, beyond the mountains and the Bekaa Valley. What surprised me after I read a couple, the couple of essays you wrote were the details that stuck in my head, the idiosyncrasies of being human. I recalled some of the people in your writings and not others. I didn't remember much about the people you wrote about who were tortured, not much about the suffering of living as refugees. The woman with the sequined pantry, however, was one of those who remained ineradicable in my memory. Though she lived in a tent that had been erected in the middle of an onion field, she refused squalor. This gorgeous woman in her early 20s had an impeccably clean home that was decorated in an understated style, except in one respect, the tent's masterwork. She had studied her entire pantry with sequins, with results Liberace would have envied. You thought she must have spent untold hours gluing sparkles onto sheets of wood that would become a pantry to store non-perishables. Intricate and delicate, no spot left uncovered, so over the top, that many a drag queen would kill for it. You desperately wanted it. You said she seemed embarrassed when she talked to you, admitting that it took her a long time to finish it, longer than she did than she anticipated. What with caring for her offspring, cooking, cleaning, and tending to her husband and in-laws. It's good to have something beautiful to come home to, she said. The children love it. I do too, you said, with real appreciation. It's magnificent. She blushed, then beamed, a shy grin, and her eyes rose to meet yours. We had a ton of sequins, she said. 
In the essay, you wondered what kind of person would think it was a good idea to donate thousands of sequins to Syrian refugees who had nothing left, whose entire lives had been extirpated. Bright, shiny, gaudy, useless sequins. A fabulous one, of course. A lovely, most wonderful human being. Been listening to Rabbi Alamadeen read from the wrong end of the telescope. If the only reason to hand the writing of this story from the writer to the surgeon was to create the Goldilocks distance, it sort of begs the question of why have the writer character at all? Um, because you could create that distance just by writing as the surgeon, I think. But at least for me, this the secondary presence of the writer not only enriched the storytelling the reading experience of the story, but it also raised a lot of questions about what storytelling does or doesn't do. On the one hand, you've talked often about the limits of empathy and that even if a writer achieves empathy, there's no saying that feeling em empathetic while you're reading is going to lead to anything tangible in terms of action or change. And in perhaps, perhaps in that light, when, when John Freeman asked you who your ideal reader was for you, you said, fuck the reader. Um, and that writing for you isn't about communication, that you write for yourself and that you have something to say to yourself. But on the other hand, it does in fact seem like the reader is on your mind. For example, in the same conversation with John, you say, quote, I couldn't care less if you empathize with my characters. I don't want people to read about AIDS and go, oh, that's nice, pass the beer. And then later you say, how can I get a reader not to feel what I would call pre-existing emotions? And you've also talked in many places about wanting to break the wall between the reader and the subject, which I imagine might be related to your notion of, of pre-existing emotions. And in the novel itself, there's this rare moment when the writer gets pinned down by the main characters in the book because he's always sort of escaping being accounted for in the book. But at one point, he sort of gets trapped into a conversation in a restaurant that Mina describes what he says as follows. You tried to find a way to write about refugees and break the wall between reader and subject. You said you wanted people not to dismiss the suffering, not to read about the loss and feel sorry feel bad for a minute or two, then go back to their glass of overly sweet Chardonnay. But you failed, of course. And then, the first crack in your veneer, you said in a whisper that the only wall you broke was yours. So I guess I'm, I'm wanting to ha hear you talk about this seemingly contradictory stance between fuck the reader and how can I get the reader to feel something other than pre-existing emotions? And also what pre-existing emotions is in, in your mind in relation to this. Let me talk about pre-existing emotions because that's the easy part. <laughs> you know, we're all programmed. You know, we, we see certain things, we feel certain things. Um, you know, it's like if all I have to do is mention the Holocaust and we all have these pre-existing feelings about them. It is the rare writer who could break through and tell you something new and make you feel something new about that. Same, you know, with AIDS, same with, you know, uh, it's like 
the the joke among writers for a long time is if if you want the reader to care about your character give them a dog because you know we all know and have these feelings uh to towards dogs that are pre-existing it's like it, it's it's there i mean it could be for a cat or whatever uh, but it's a rare writer who could you know tell you about their love of their dog and make it brilliant uh i keep thinking my dog tulip you know uh, jr ackerley's book uh, which is you know the dog is such a disaster but the writer actually thinks that it's the greatest dog in the world. So it introduced something completely new to, to the equation. Uh, and that's what I think every writer wants is some form of connection. Um, I, in, in the interview with, with Kara, um, I mentioned the first time we met when you know I told her about the accident that my young nephew had at the time. And her reaction was so swift and so, for lack of a better word, genuine, uh, that I felt right away a strong connection to her. And she had a strong connection to the story. And in my opinion, a book should do that, um, to have something authentic or genuine or original or whatever we want to call it, as opposed to the familiarity of feelings, which is what almost these days most writing is, is, is just familiar it takes you down roads you've been there before it's comforting and it is lovely i'm not suggesting it's not it's just you know we've seen this before you know it it makes you feel comfortable it's like wearing a nice sweater and on you know in a cold day um there's nothing necessarily wrong with it but i'm not interested in that and in my opinion that is not the province of literature that's the province of writing literature is supposed to induce something different um, it's supposed to, um, like great art, it's supposed to take you places you haven't been before, emotionally primarily, you know, and intellectually, but emotionally primarily. So that's that. The, uh, you know, fuck the reader, and I want to fuck the reader. That's what I call it. <laughs> it's, 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 yes, it's, it's a dichotomy, and it's too to, you know, ends of a line or a continuum or whatever. And my first response is always this, so what? You know, I contradict myself all the time. You know, I in the first section that I read, I say that, uh, yes, I want to, you know, uh, fuck the reader because most of the time I don't care. Uh, you know, I'm tired of writing that, you know, is supposed to please uh, make everybody feel happy, like I said, and comfortable. And and, um, and at the same time, I do care because I want to, you know, it's like I can't get a hold of a reader and slap them silly. So my next best thing is to write a book that does. Uh, and I don't mean it as a, like, you know, this is a book that will, but to wake up some people, you know, to wake up someone, to to have something new to um, to have a, a frisson of excitement, uh, you know, as opposed to this, you know, feeling of comfort and, and escapist, you know. Uh, and again, I keep saying that it's not nothing inherently wrong with, with wanting to escape and reading to escape. It's absolutely, you know, necessary. And I keep thinking, I want to write 
a sort of a superhero dragon book with that, you know, is predictable and it makes everybody feel good. Uh, I love them. Okay. But that's not exactly what I go for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to fuck with the reader. You know, I, I, I want to fuck the reader <laughs> and fuck the reader. You know, um, well, maybe- and, and, and my favorite books have fucked me over completely, you know, completely. You know, it's like we're just talking about Invisible Cities. Here I am. I've, I read it now like 35 years after I first time, uh, the first time I read it, and it fucked me up. I mean, what more? It's, you know, the Kafka quote, it's to break the, the frozen seas within you. Now, again, not every book should be that. And, you know, uh, I mean, every, sometimes I get asked, what, what do you read? I read everything, including romance novels. And you know, vampire novels, anything. I I love genre movies, genre fiction because you know it makes me feel comfortable and it removes all the troubles of the day. But when I really want to read, I want something that will fuck me up. Yeah. Well, maybe in that spirit, I want to talk about Satan. Oh God, uh, yes, let's talk about Satan, <laughs> who was a character in your last book, but not portrayed um, the way we would normally have Satan portrayed. Uh, this is the Satan who will not bow down to Adam because Satan only has love for God. The Satan who says, all of those who say no, follow me. So you you call him the saint, not just of gay men, but of all outsiders. And you've talked about the thing you most identify with in terms of identity is not being gay or Arab American it is being someone not belonging belonging anywhere or or of being a misfit that you're attracted to writers like Pessoa and Kafka and Walter Benjamin who are also strange on the inside and the outside and who understand what it means to be odd um, which you described as to choose a life where one foot is in the world and one foot is in your own psyche and you've also said that having one foot in two cultures Lebanon and the U.S. is part of how you find the Goldilocks distance. Um, and a way of being you've described in your, your first book, Kool-Aids, as in America you fit but do not belong, and in Lebanon you belong but do not fit. But, but thinking of Satan in this light as a patron saint of the outsiders, and, and back to what writing can and can't do, when you were on the Arabology podcast about five years ago, you were talking about books of yours that were accepted for translation into Arabic Arabic, uh, and then dropped due to their discovery of what you were actually writing about or, or controversies that uh, came up around what you were writing about. And you said, wherever there is censorship, one must get censored. Otherwise, you're just diddling around. And you've also said that you're with Kafka when he says, we ought to read only the kind of books that wound or stab us. And it feels like your topics, whether it's AIDS or drone strikes or Syrian refugees, are very much in that spirit of speaking to power. Uh, But you also have been disturbed that these very same books by you have been embraced and celebrated, or at least been disturbed by how they've been embraced and celebrated at some point. So that your best-selling, the Hakawadi, would be put forth as somehow representative of an entire culture. 
uh, as one reviewer said, as a bridge to the Arab soul. But then when you wrote An Unnecessary Woman in response as a way to create a protagonist who couldn't be more different and couldn't be less concerned about audience or public opinion, um, that book too was embraced and loved and perhaps even more so and perhaps is even more defines you um, or at least uh, is one that people think about you with. And you have this great essay in Harper's called Comforting Myths, where you look at the way America metabolizes other voices and puts them forth as what you call the cute other, the other that it becomes the purveyor of comforting myths, um, perhaps even unwittingly. And you talk about how America celebrates global writing not by reading or foreground, foregrounding writers that are truly from different places, but almost exclusively writers like Salman Rushdie or Juno Diaz or yourself who are Westerners, who are living in the West, who are connected often to academic institutions in the West, and you call these people the cute other. Um, I guess this is my long way of asking, as a follower of Satan, of saying no, of being an outsider, and someone who wants to read and write books that will wound us and stab us. And yet as someone who fears they're getting metabolized as the cute other, nonetheless, if you could just talk about this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yes, yes, I could, I could talk about it. <laughs> I could spend years talking about it. Uh, let's start with Satan. Uh, again, every, every group needs another and you know we other it and, and so on but primarily for me with with satan is that he just refused to go along he had different ideas and he gets vilified for that and then we start you know not we but all of religion start projecting all kinds of evil onto the person uh and there are a number of uh offshoots of religion that talk about not I mean not Satanist uh, as or Satanism as a religion but the idea of what what Satan or Iblis stands for uh, which is for me the ability to say no and in a when we're living in times where uh, God is a fascist in in all senses of the word you know it's it's this only through me you get to heaven and uh, that uh, following Satan or following saying no to that, saying no to, you know, I refuse to be like you. I refuse to, you know, live in inferno. Uh, makes one sort of appreciate uh, Satan, as I called him in the book, the first revolutionary. You know, it's like all those who say no. You know? So, so there's that. Uh, and yes, you know, I, I uh, fight or I want to write in opposition to the dominant culture. Uh, it, it's in my nature. When I was a young boy, uh, my, my friends used to uh, call me the, the refusal front, which was a, a faction of the PLO that said no to everything. Because whatever they suggested, I would say no. You want to play soccer? No. 
<laughs> so my tendency is to go against what the group wants. Uh, so there's that. And at the same time, like I said, I can hold two opposing you know, points of view. And I am in many ways, two opposing things. I do want to be accepted. I do want to, to, to be read and validated. And, and uh, I want to be loved. And if that means having to be the cute other, okay, I'll take it. Uh, you know, I, I have that in, in abundance. So um, like, you know, we said earlier, I'm, I'm at least 15 different person, personas, not 72 yet, but I'm working on it. So yes, there's, there's that as well. So it's a constant clash uh, of, of being, you know, wanting to reject everything and wanting to be accepted. Um, so there's there's that. It, as terms of you know the sort of essay and I do I you know I like I like that essay a lot and I, I think about it all the time and and it's that for most Americans and for most readers and critics I am the other as a writer. Yet the truth of the matter is I'm an American. Uh, not just that I've been here since I was 17, so that's, you know, 45 years ago, but that most of my education, even when I was in Lebanon, and uh, is basically an American education. Uh, so that, you know, all the, all the things that I accuse American literature with, I accuse myself, you know, I am American literature. I'm not I am a part of America. <laughs> Not all of it. Okay. Not yet. Yes. I intend to take over. <laughs> Satan and I will one day rule American literature. I hope so. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and just you wait, somebody will use that quote. And then, he said. <laughs> uh, watch out. Watch out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's was my whole thing about the essay is that we look we i am being othered even though i am part of the of the culture so I, could you just imagine what happens to writers who are actually other who are actually outside of of the western culture they're completely you know either completely ignored or hated mm -hmm. uh, we don't allow that kind of literature in at all so Yes, there is a part of me that wants, you know, to be the outsider and a part of me that wants to be the insider. And I believe we all do. It's just, you know, we're on different points at the scale. Well, let me quote something you've, you've said in the past that is related to this. Uh, and I'm curious about whether it applies to your latest book. You've said, one of the things that happens with me is that so far, every book I write is not just in response to the last book, but a rebellion against it. So is, is the wrong end of the telescope a rebellion against the angel of history? And, yes. and if so, how? Let's put it this way. It is the least rebellious against the former book. And I felt really guilty about that when I was writing this. I kept feeling, when I was writing uh, the wrong end of the telescope. I kept feeling, I've done this before. God damn it, I've done this before. I'm using the same, you know, I, I, it wasn't as, 
as big of a move, but it was definitely a rebellion. Um, the angel of history, even though it takes on a big subject, um, it's it's smaller in scope. Uh, it's about a one writer, uh, and yes, it's about his friends and what happened, uh, and it's about you know the drone wars and it's about AIDS and all that. But it's really just the internal life of one person, you know, struggling to adjust to a weird world, you know, and, and Satan keeps telling him that it's not you who's crazy, it's the world that's crazy. Um, in this book, it's, it's, shall we say, outwardly directed. Uh, you know, yes, the writer, and that's, I guess, why it didn't work. The writer is having his drama or, you know, drama, you know, which sometimes is the same thing. But Mina is engaging the world, you know, and she's engaging characters and she's um, engaging people and situations. In the Angel of Histories, he doesn't. He's, it's a smaller scope. Uh, it's a big story within someone's head in some ways. This is a big story that was in the narrator's head, but Mina does not allow it to continue to be so. So yes, it is in rebellion. But it wasn't in great rebellion, I keep saying, because really nobody read the Angel of History. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I mean it, it's it it wasn't the most uh, read. You know, I like I said, every book does well. When it does well, I rebel against it. Yeah, you know, the well, Angel of History. Maybe this one stabs I, more. Maybe sorry? this one wounds or stabs in the way that you. Well, the the Angel of History at that time I thought was my best work. Uh, and it was not, I mean, it was well received by critics and stuff, but it yeah. didn't do well. It was too too gay, too queer, too uh, sexual and strange. And, you know, Satan was a joy as opposed to, you know, the evil person that he's supposed to be. It wasn't, you know, I don't know how much it sells. I never figured, but I don't think it sold much. Huh. So I didn't feel a need to rebel against it that much, but I did. <laughs> well, Satan's a joy in the Milton, too. Oh God, yes. Yeah. He's the best thing in Milton. Yes, by far. Well, I wanted to I wanted to talk about writing from a perspective that isn't your subject position as a, a Lebanese American gay man. Um, something that you've long done. And you've often expressed surprise that people themselves are surprised that you would be able to create protagonists who are women. And you're asked about this a lot. In fact, most of the times that I've watched or listened to things with you, this is a topic that comes up, sometimes from simple curiosity, but sometimes it comes from ignorance where readers imagine there are not strong women in Arab cultures and thus are surprised to see strong women in your books. And you've, you've said that the whole notion of write what you know is not just boring, but wrong and that it seems like every novel now has to be a memoir. And it makes me think of the Zadie Smith piece, Fascinated to Presume, where she says, the old and never especially helpful adage, write what you know, has morphed into something more like a threat, stay in your lane. This principle permits the category of fiction, 
but really only to the extent that we acknowledge and confess that personal experience is inviolate and non-transferable. It concedes that personal experience may be displayed very carefully to the unlike us, to the stranger, even to the enemy, but insists it can never truly be shared by them. And then later she asks, what would our debates about fiction look like if our preferred verbal container for the phenomenon of writing about others was not cultural appropriation, but rather profound other fascination or even cross-epidermal reanimation? And she's also mentioned elsewhere that it's her character, Alex Lee, who's half Chinese and half Jewish, that she feels is most like her, uh, a person who is neither Chinese or Jewish. Um, it also makes me think of something that I brought up with Abdel Atayo when he was on the show. Um, I had just watched him do a reading prior to him being on the show where he was about to talk to Colm Tobin, and he got up to read first, and he prefaced his reading by saying that he was going to read in the voice of Zahira, which was his female prostitute protagonist, which was not him. But then he stopped himself and said, no, actually, she is me, that he couldn't write except by pulling all that he knew and all of who he is into any character, including a female prostitute. So I guess I, was, I just wanted to have my long non-question, introduce this question of um, the fiction and the other. Um, if you could talk to this, talk to us about this, particularly in relationship to this book where our main character, while Lebanese American, is a trans woman, lesbian doctor. Uh, sure, I can talk about it. Although why you'd want me to, because God damn it, Zadie is so much more eloquent than I am. And that, <laughs> it was really well done. Um, I, 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 like I said, I'm, I, in, I've said it now. I'm very rebellious. I say, no, you tell me to stay in your lane. I say, fuck you. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, the thing with me is that I actually rarely go out of my lane that much. Like I said, all my characters are sort of a variation of me. Um, I had a lot more issues with this book writing about Mina as a surgeon than I did about Mina as a trans woman uh, lesbian. Uh, surgeon was a much, much bigger obstacle in many ways to imagine what the life of a surgeon would be like as opposed to the life of a trans woman lesbian. I spend almost all my time with trans women lesbians. <laughs> it's not that difficult. <laughs> uh, it's not that difficult to imagine for me what it's like uh, to be that out of the dominant culture, you know. Uh, I am, I mean, I could make so many jokes about this and I know people take this so seriously, but really, I am a trans woman, lesbian and a gay man's buddy. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it just, uh, it never occurs to me to question whether I could write that. It 
I spent hours and days questioning whether I could write about her as a surgeon, because that is so, for me, difficult to imagine. And I had to, you know, talk to all kinds of people. I talked to, to, I mean, I had at least seven different doctors sort of advising me the whole time. For the, about the trans women, I had two of my close friends, you know, they, they, they tell me yes or no. Uh, but the idea that you can't or you're not allowed is just goes contrary to everything I believe in. Now, a lot of the appropriation conversation is, is important to have. Uh, and yes, appropriation is a problem uh, because it's an issue of power and who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. Um, the most of the people who are anti-appropriation, uh, anti, anti who believe that they can write about anything they want are wrong. They can't. Uh, and the reason they can't is because they're terrible writers for the most part. Uh, but it's difficult because it's difficult for them to imagine what it's like. You know, I mean, the whole say, let's pick one, the controversy about American dirt. The proper, it, the, there was a big problem of appropriation there, but it wasn't about a white woman writing about a Mexican woman. It's about a white woman writing about badly about a Mexican woman, as in she was incapable of imagining what it was like to live as a Mexican woman. So she had to come up with stereotypes of, of just truly astoundingly bad stereotypes. When John Updike writes a book about an 18 year old Egyptian American and calls it terrorist, it's a terrible book because nowhere in anything that you know, Updike has experienced, I mean, I don't know what he lived his life, but he was not able to imagine what it's like for an 18 year old Egyptian American. Now, I would have a lot of problems writing uh, about, you know, rabbit, you know, it's, it's, it's not, not only not part of my experience, it would be difficult for me to imagine. That doesn't mean I'm staying in my lane. It means I know where I could imagine. I would have to do a hell of a lot of research to write about a straight, white, successful man living in suburbia. I cannot imagine anybody wanting to live in suburbia. So that for me, that is out of the question. Writing about somebody who lives in suburbia would be so much more difficult for me than writing about a trans woman. So it's about knowing, or at least how, how, um, how good is our imagination. The problem that I see right now is in this culture, really, it is coming full for, is that we have a poverty of imagination. Um, the writing, it's like, all you'd have to do is go see movies now. It's like, all the movies that come out of Hollywood are the same thing anymore. Nobody can even imagine another kind of movie being successful anymore because we stopped being able to imagine. Books tend to be, you know, personal, confessional, and oh, and if they're personal, confessional that you can't identify with, forget about it. So it has to be a personal confessional of what's the topic du jour, you know, what drama is happening today. That's what's happening. It's not about, you know, 
appropriation. It's about a limited imagination that we're going through. And that's a problem. Now, again, that doesn't mean that appropriation should be ignored. On the contrary, it should, we should talk about it because for the most part, what most people who object to, to this whole discussion, it's about they don't want to be criticized. Well, you know, if you write a book in, about somebody who's not like you and you do a terrible job, you are supposed to be criticized. You're not immune to, to it. The trouble is, do you have, like, are you able to do it? Well, you know, despite being a proponent of writing the imagined or in addition to having this position, um, you did use sensitivity readers in the book. You do thank, of course. you do thank Susan Stryker, the, the scholar and theorist of transgender studies, who's also your friend. Um, do you, I stole her story. <laughs> well, a lot of, a lot of her backstory is, is Mina's backstory. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. I, I, do you, do you, I mean, maybe the answer to this question is going to be both or neither, but do you see the use of sensitivity readers as a, a, way, a way to avoid inadvertent harm or as a way to make sure you're getting the details right? Oh, uh, I, again, that, that uh, inadvertent harm thing is, is rankles a little. Um, you know, I am not responsible for someone else's harm. Um, you know, we've gotten to the point again where everybody becomes a victim and, oh my God, my feelings were hurt or, well, honey, you know, again, get over it. Um, we're, we're, I mean, again, it, it's my feelings are my own. I'm responsible for them. And that doesn't mean that you're not an asshole if you insult me, but that's your problem. Uh, no, and it's not about inadvertent heart. It, it's about making the best novel that I can. I don't give it to sensitivity readers. I give it to people who can help me edit the novel. Uh, Susan was not, you know, it's like there were some things that she corrected that I would not know. I would not have known. She's someone who has, who is trans and has gone through experiences that I cannot even begin. I would miss so many things if not for her, but I don't see it as sensitivity. I hate that word. I'm not sensitive. <laughs> I see it as, you know, making my novel better, you know, making my novel more true or to feel more true. Uh, making it better. I sh I showed it to at least three different doctors. Yeah, like I said, nobody goes, "Oh my God, they're sensitivity," you know, readers. No, no, they they're just trying to make my. I mean, they're actually harsher than most trans women I know. Yeah, well, I liked Susan's comments about the book about how she found it particularly gratifying that your portrayal of Mina was understated and how it handled her identity and that you didn't make her transness a battlefield for the culture wars. It was just an unproblematic perspective from which you told the story. Um, and she says it was refreshing to encounter trans characters in the book whose gender identity wasn't their overriding story and that their transition wasn't centered as the only story about them. But the thing that leapt out also was she liked that because trans people are so often portrayed as deceptive or as deceivers to see trans people in the wrong end of the telescope doing deeply moral humanitarian work seemed noteworthy to her. 
Um, but while you don't focus on Mina or the other trans characters in relationship to their acts of transition, uh, or you don't, you don't focus on their acts of transition in a way that, that Susan Stryker found um, admirable, um, there are, are motifs of, of crossing borders in the book that aren't about transness. I'm thinking of the cross-dressing Greek man on Lesbos who, who continues as a sort of secondary background character in the town, but also the story which you referred to early, earlier of in Syria under Daesh where um, Daesh isn't allowing male doctors to treat women. So the doctor does two calls to the same house, once dressed as a man and another dressed as a woman. Can you t- talk about what these non, the presence of these non-trans characters who are nevertheless crossing boundaries, what role do you see their their presences playing or their stories playing within the book? Uh, I mean, again, in many ways, the whole book is about crossing boundaries, um, you know, going from one place to the next. Uh, and these, um, uh, it's like whether they're trans or not trans or whatever, we're constantly moving. Uh, it is not incidental to the novel that Mina is trans. Um, but at the same time, her transness is not what defines Mina. Uh, Susan is one of my closest friends. I rarely think of her as trans. You know, she's not my trans friend. I have many. They would kill me if I said Susan was my trans. But uh, <laughs> it, I, it's, it's like, yes, her transness is part of who she is. Uh, I mean, it's a big part of who she is, but her story encompasses more. It never occurred to me to make the story about Nina's transness that in many ways would be a limited and boring story. Um, it's about her engagement with the world. Uh, so you include other characters. One of the things that, you know, I mean, is, is a, you know, this is a trick as opposed to uh, the earlier that if, and I learned it from one of my earlier books, if you're, if the character is a minority or is outside of the dominant culture, when the dominant culture reads the book, they will assign all the qualities of that character onto the rest of the population. So if you write about a you know queer Arab and th- that character behaves in a certain way, the dominant culture and reviewers in general will start assigning that character's behavior to an entire class of people. All gay Arabs behave that way. So what you what needs to be done in terms of storytelling is if I'm writing about a trans character, I don't want everyone to believe that the reason she does this or she's able to to work with this person is because she's trans. So what you do is you just include variations of of different things. I mean, for me, one of my favorite characters is Emma, who's also trans, but she's almost the complete opposite of of uh, of Mina. Uh, and you know, I wanted a predatory, fun, you know, trans woman who you know wants to fuck every straight boy there is. You know, it's like yes, I could see that. <laughs> you know, and that's not you know that's not Mina. Uh, you know, one of the things, like I said, I start thinking is if if there is 
you know, Mina is in a long-term relationship, you know, married for over 30 years that, you know, uh, there's not much that is sexual about her. And I didn't want anybody to assume that trans people can be sexual. So <laughs> you, have, you have Emma that comes to the rescue and reminds people, oh no, we can have sex. Well, <laughs> that makes me think when I read Rebecca Mackay's blurb for your book and it ends with, and it's a whole lot of fun or something like that. Um, I don't know that I would call the wrong end of the telescope fun exactly, but I do think you it- You should, you should call it fun. It, it sells more books. But I do think it points to something that doesn't get captured when we discuss just the broad topics of the book. Um, that the book is a warm and full of love and entertaining. Um, and I do think that's the prominent tone of the book. Like I'm thinking of- in one conversation about your life in San Francisco during the worst part of the AIDS crisis, where by the mid nineties, half of your soccer team had died. Uh, you mentioned how the lesbian community was incredible that how they were continually showing up in meaningful and unexpected ways. And when I think about that in relationship to all of our discussion about the limitations of writing or the limitations of empathy or the limitations of being a volunteer or the impossibility of making a difference, um, it wouldn't be right to not mention the many like really heartening and heart opening relationships in this book. Um, mm -hmm. And many of them are centered. That actually make a difference. <laughs> that do make a difference. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I mean, I think of Mina and her brother, which is just this remarkable relationship on the page. And I think about Mina and her relationship with her partner, Francine back in Chicago. Um, who's, I mean, she's, you could say she's a minor character, but her, their relationship does not feel minor in the book at all. She's not a minor character. No. You know? I mean, again, she's in the background, but she's not a minor character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, I'm, I, I, I'm full of contradictions. I actually believe we make no difference. And then at the same time, I believe we make a lot of difference. Uh, I, I mean, all you had to do to get me crying is to mention, you know, my lesbian friends. They weren't friends at the time who just, you know, at our worst moment, they showed up and they showed up in full. Yeah. You can't, you know, you can't talk. I cannot talk about it without remembering like, what the fuck? Where did they come from? Where are they? Why? Why? And when nobody else wanted to be around, they came. So, no, no, again, sorry, it's a difficult time. But again, it, it's, it's like, yes, yes, we can't make a difference in terms of crisis. But then you look at, seriously, going back to look at the volunteers who went. I mean, the number of people who went to help refugees is amazing. The number of people who, who you know, all of a sudden became fascist and closed the borders and stuff, uh, there's a lot more of them. But you can't forget that as bad as I, you know, sometimes talk about the, the volunteers, they're amazing that they actually think that they can, they can make a difference. Yes. Yeah. And Mina's brother is amazing. And, mm -hmm. and Amina's, and Mina's partner is amazing too. I think. I also wanted, you know, I don't know why I insisted on um, Mina being surrounded by love, you know, and that she's, she's, a, such a loving person. Um, 
it, it needed to be it's like there was no way she needed to to have that she needed you know her brother's love as a storyteller you know as as a story not just uh she needed to be in a solid loving relationship so that you know to contrast in some ways what happened to the writer and how she was able to extend to him what he didn't seem to have well let's let's return to the the title of the book which you alluded to earlier on um because many of your titles are references to writers the angel of history comes from walter benjamin's famous engagement with the angel of history um an unnecessary woman is in conversation with the way Bruno Schultz was considered a necessary Jew kept alive during the war. So he could complete a mural for a Nazi's daughter's bedroom wall and the wrong end of the telescope. If I'm to trust your Twitter account comes from a quote from DH Lawrence that goes, it's easy to love America passionately when you look at it through the wrong end of the telescope. Talk to us about why the wrong end of the telescope is the right uh, title for for this book. Well, there's part of that. Part of the answer to the question is inexplicable, as in you know it just felt right from the beginning. You know, um, but it 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 does come from that quote. Um, but it to me, D.H. Lawrence, it, that was in the book. Um, studies in classical American literature, which is a brilliant book that I think he wrote while drunk for five in five days because he needed money. And it's probably, in my opinion, probably his best book. And it's like this small. Um, but it's about, it's, it says that about, you know, the writers who love America. And it says, you know, it's easy to love America passionately when you look at it through the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, but, but for me, this book is not about America per se. So it's not about looking at America through the wrong end of the telescope. It's that we look at everything from the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, it is one of the things that keeps us sane is to distance some things, and to look at it as if it's the other. Um, and in the book, it's in this book, it's the right title because I even though I am looking at the refugees uh, situation, um, and you used in the beginning of the, this talk, you used the word that the book grapples with something. And I thought, yes, I, I grapple sort of like uh, Jacob and the angels, like it, 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 it's, it's grappling, but you don't ever get a hold of it. Um, but it, it grapples with the refugee situation, but it really is the story of Mina, the story of, of Sumeya, the story of, of the narrator who is not me, but me. Uh, it's, it's, you know, once we start looking at people as people, not as the other and not as a collection or a class, it, it, it changes things. I hope it changes things. Uh, so, I wanted to look at the refugee situation, but I did not want to look at the refugee situation. I wanted to look at the refugees. Uh, so again, as, as single stories. Well, there's a moment when the writer character decides he's not going to write another book about refugees for Western entertainment. And a friend of his suggests something that's brilliant, I think, that maybe he could write something 
that would allow the displaced people, the refugees, to inhabit the skin of Americans, allowing them to walk around in their fashionable clothes, empathize with their boredom and their angst, and where they could drama shop and go crisis touring themselves. Just so amazing to imagine. Um, if this real writer before me today is not going to write about refugees either, do you know how your next book is going to rebel against the wrong end of the telescope? Um, <laughs> I have to start it with the next book. Uh, in in like I said, it, most of my books are rebellion against right? the the that kind of book was an unnecessary woman about a you know a Lebanese woman living in Beirut um, that. In, even though she translates Western literature and stuff, but has nothing to do with, with America. Uh, and, you know, would Americans read it and feel some empathy towards, you know, non-Americans? I always wondered, but apparently they do, they do. Uh, you know, it still stuns me at times to listen to people going like, it's such a tragic situation she's in, you know, she's, she lives in such a patriarchal society. And I look and think like, and we live in what kind of society? That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is like, unless she's married or, or have kids, then, you know, she's ignored. And that's not the case over here. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. so yes, I, I, I do that. I don't know what my next novel is. What I'm working on right now doesn't seem to be coalescing right now. Uh, and I'm blaming the pandemic still. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, something will come up. And yes, it will be a rebellion, most probably. And I'm hoping it's a smaller book. You know, like, do I really have to tackle the refugee situations? Like, can I just write a, a little nice book about, you know, two people who have lunch? I love it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Without Satan coming to do to, to, no <laughs> Okay. Um, could we could we end with a reading of the chapter, The Cave of Shanadar? Oh my, okay. Sort of the hopeful chapter. Yes and no. Yeah, no. <laughs> it never It's straight answer with me. The Cave of Shanadar. In spite of quite a bit of evidence to the contrary, I like to think of the world as kind, of humanity as decent, if flawed. My misinterpretation of the just world fallacy. I like to think that we humans try to do the right thing. Between 1957 and 1961, at a burial site inside a cave called Chanidar in northern Iraq, archaeologists discovered the fossilized remains of eight adult and two infant Neanderthals, dating from around 65,000 to 35,000 years ago. Found with them were hundreds of stone tools, as well as bones of wild goats and tortoises. Nine of the 10 remains were lost, along with 15,000 cultural artifacts during the mess of shock and awe in 2003, where US forces invaded the country, destroyed the infrastructure, and chose to protect the oil ministry building, but not the National Museum of Iraq.
The most famous of the 10 Neanderthals was the one who was discovered first, called Chanidar I, but known as Nandi among his excavators. He was remarkably old for a Neanderthal, somewhere between 40 and 50. Yet he displayed severe trauma-related deformities. He had a withered right arm, no hand or forearm, and a deformed right leg. He was also apparently deaf, as his ear canals were blocked by exostosis. His day-to-day -day life must have been excruciatingly painful, yet he was seemingly cared for by the community. Among the numerous discoveries at the burial site were clumps of pollen representing a large variety of flowers from grape hyacinth to yarrow. A debate still rages among archeologists whether these flowers were part of the Neanderthal burial rites or were introduced to the site by gerds, a variety of rodent. I prefer to think that my ancestor and yours would care for the weakest among them and then bury him with garlands of flowers. Go, dear one, we send you away with yellow cockspur and daisies, cornflowers and hyacinths. Shanidar III does not have a nickname that I know of. He is in the United States at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, an immigrant. He too was between 40 and 50 years old and was found in the same grave as Nandi. He had a wound to the left ninth rib, a severe cut deep enough to have collapsed his lung. Shanidar III is the oldest known individual who was presumably murdered. My ancestors and yours were also killers. Thank you so much, Rabi, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. We are talking today to Rabi Alamadine about his latest book, The Wrong End of the Telescope. You're listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Rabi Alamadine can be found at rabialamadine.com. And if you are on Twitter, be sure to seek out and follow Rabi's incredible curation of paintings and poems there. Rabi adds a short discussion and reading of Fernando Pessoa, to the bonus audio archive. This joins supplemental readings by everyone from Garth Greenwell and Victoria Chang to Jory Graham and Teju Cole, craft talks from Jimmy Venasco to Marlon James, and much more. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio and about the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. 
Their album Emre Lodbrog is Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.